Hey, good people, this is your N.I. Dom, back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, social. Social. That's my starting point. I want to play with that word because I don't think it is the essence of the reflection. But I think social has something to do with the reflection, okay? So that's all I have um, as a concept. I just have a single word. I also want to tell you something else. I have an outline today. You guys know I'm unedited. I'm unscripted. Um, And uh, when I have more than just me hitting the record button, freestyling, sometimes I might have a list. Sometimes I have a few words. But I actually have... um, Concepts that are organized in an outline. So it's not a detailed outline. There are really no notes. They're just words. And I put together like a word map. Kind of like, this is how I'd like to move throughout this reflection. But I am not going to be beholden to this outline. Because, like I said, there is something about social that I want to get to. Either it's a theory or a discovery. Could be both. Could be neither. But because there is intentionality with this reflection, I have an intention for this one. I was like, well, let's see if we, let's start off with an outline, okay? So I'm actually going to read the outline to you because it's like, um, I don't know if I said this already. But if there are 50 words to here, um, they're just words and it's organized in a very, very basic one-page outline. And when I say one-pager, there's a lot of white space on this piece of paper. So I'm going to read that, and I'm going to do my disclaimers. And then I do have some text that I'm going to read to you. And then I'm going to try to... Um, see, what is what is in me trying to come out, okay? So let me do this outline real quick. First of all, I have intro... Um, where there's some discoveries, uh, there's some events that made the social as a concept relevant. Um, so there are three events. God help me when I try to talk about those because, you know, I get into my storytelling and I just become ridiculous, okay? So after that intro, then I have um, um, the disclaimers because I know I'm going to move in that. And then uh, I want to do some text. I already told you that. That's I'm all in my outline. And then my conclusion. Now, I do have three points for a conclusion. That's interesting that I would know what the conclusion is, even though I don't know what the social that I'm trying to get to. It's interesting. There's something here that is not really in my consciousness. I think I'm straddling consciousness and unconsciousness right now. So let me tell you the three points that I have in the conclusion. The individual is a misconception or a misnomer. Relating to the social world, um, our relationships with others are influenced by the by the other by excuse me by the social. And I have a resolution about what I'm going to do in my family situation that I want to share with you all. And all of this is supposed to happen in this reflection. So wish me luck, okay. I'm not going to be able to give you those three um, events in this in the intro. I'm going to have to do it on the other side of the disclaimers because I know for a fact I'll exceed the five minutes. So let me just jump into the disclaimers, okay? 
Hey, if you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two theories that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma, which I've been telling all of my business about <laughs> over the last few episodes. Okay, I'm a trained and practicing um, educator and social scientist of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I lean into tenets of critical race feminism, which means I have an intellectual sensitivity of social constructs of power, such as race, class, gender, sexuality, just to name a few. This project is unedited and unscripted, but today we have an outline. Uh, to know more about it and or me, feel free to go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. So the last episode I did, um, I don't even know the name of it, but I was talking about an event that I experienced with my family. And um, I've had two events. I think I've told you both of them. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, I, when I go back and listen to those episodes, if I haven't, um, just let me know if you want, if you need that information. I think I told you I had one um, for Memorial Day, and then I had one this past Saturday. And I did a report. Recording on Sunday morning, so I know I must have told you about the second event. I'm pretty sure I told you about the second event. But they were both family-related, and they were both in the same house. When I did the recording on Sunday, I actually, and I, if you listen to the end, I said, okay, I'm going to hit this stop button, because it was a lot I wanted to tell you all. And I was... I ran out of time or I spent a ridiculous amount of time doing some storytelling and then I ran out of time. So I hit the end. I ended the recording and then I hit the the start button again. And I got 50 minutes into that recording, maybe 55 minutes and my battery died. So I saved it. I thought I could go back to the recording and like edit and add to it. And as of yet, I haven't been able to do that. So then I went and listened to it. <laughs> and I was like, this is a train wreck. And I'm afraid to listen to that recording from Sunday. Because they were both recorded on the same day. So I was in a heightened state of emotion. Um, which, I mean, it is what it is. We all have emotions. Um, I don't like when I do those recordings where I'm in a heightened state of emotions. I talk faster. I think I told you guys this before. I talk faster. Um, I don't complete my sentences. I'm, I feel like I'm more erratic. I'm more bouncy. And um, I'm breathy. And I'm loud. And I'm just like, oh. And I like, you know, the way I'm talking now. And I'm measured. And I'm steady. I like this. I like this energy that's on me now. <laughs> But as soon as I start telling you these stories, particularly as it relates to family, then I get, you know, I just, I just am stirred up, probably triggered. And that's what happens. So that second recording 
when I went back to listen to it to see if it was even worth trying to figure out how to salvage it, I was like, this is a train wreck. We're going to delete it. And I have not listened to the other one that I did release to you because I'm not ready to be embarrassed. Like, I'm like, whatever, just whatever. It is what it is. But there was a second recording and it got lost. Okay. But I believe now, because I went through that 50, 55 minute recording, I think that's still, I still experience this analysis. And I think that has influenced me doing this recording today. Today is a Thursday and I just didn't want to wait till Sunday. Okay. All right. Cause I, so basically today's reflection is an attempt to redo the second one from Sunday. All right. However, there was another event. So after I recorded that, that episode Sunday morning, there was another event and it got intense. Now, not it wasn't wasn't physical, but it was an event. Hold on a second. And I don't believe I told you guys this. I don't think I have. And if I did, then I'm just gonna be on repeat, okay? Because these are real this is a real situation, so just bear with me, okay? So there's that third event. From Sunday after I recorded with you all that I want to share with you. And then I want to try to tell you two other things that connect to this idea of the social. Let me tell you the two easy ones and then I'm going to tell you that third, that third family event. One of the things that's making me think about social, one event that's making me think about social is my job. Particularly a coworker. So I'm in a director's role. I supervise. I'm not talking about coworkers that I supervise or quasi-supervise because I don't really supervise. That's all. That's a puzzle waiting to be cracked or solved at some other point. We won't do that today. And I'm not going to talk about my boss, although that's another reflection and not in a not in a derogatory or disparaging way. I'm talking about. My coworker, she's in the other, the other director, the other assistant director. And there's a video that I listened to that talked about, um, um, I think I did talk to you guys about this, Patrick. And, uh, Patrick was talking about, um, I can't remember what Patrick talked about because I went and listened to another one of his videos. Monday because of what happened Sunday so those videos are starting to kind of blur in my head go check them out but I know I just started talking about um, maybe the drama triad the, the drama cycle the, and you have the character who's the victor the victim so you have these characters there it is it's coming to me you have these characters um, in the trauma setting, in the, in the, in the social trauma setting, and you have, you have a, it, I think that's what I talked about. There are a number of characters, number of character schemes, a number of scripts. One of the scripts I talked about was the narcissist script, a social script. And then I didn't get too much into it, but I had planned to talk about the, um, trauma social script in the family. And I think that was, I started unpacking that in that second audio that I deleted or that didn't 
get it didn't get uploaded. And in that script, the three characters are victim, persecutor, and um, victim, persecutor, and rescuer. And what creates the drama is that one actor can embody all three of those characters. Now, in the other script, the narcissist family script I talked about, you can bounce between like the golden child and the um, scapegoat. That they, that can move. It's starting to come back to me. I just talked about how um, I have been moved about in that social setting between um, the scapegoat and the golden child. And it's really interesting because I, I want to make an argument that I've mostly been the scapegoat. But what I'm, if I think about it, I think it, it, it's, I probably have mostly been the scapegoat, but I think it's, if we're going to talk about percentages, maybe 55% the scapegoat, 45% the golden child, because I'm, I belong to two different family structures in the on the same side of the family because I, I talked to you guys about being in an extended family. I don't want to rehash that reflection. Right. Well, that's one script. And you, those two characters can bounce, can be shared by a single actor. So in my case, I'm the single actor and the characters that I've been positioned in been the scapegoat and the golden child. Not that I consciously chose that. And that speaks to this idea of the social, right? That there's a social environment, social scripts that we all then get pulled into. Even those with a, even those of us with a high level of consciousness, we get pulled into this social world with these social scripts and we start playing these social characters. Okay. Now, in the family trauma script, what makes the trauma dramatic, like drama, is that one actor can play all three of those characters, victim, persecutor, and um, rescuer, victim, persecutor, and rescuer. And for the people around that person, that can be confusing. And with the social narratives and the social scripts that govern that social context, that can get more confusing and complicated when you have a single actor embodying all three of those characters and each of those characters have a set of expectations as their own script. And that's, is that it really, really causes the drama. Okay. So a coworker, my coworker, I believe I have been able to literally witness her embody all three of those characters. I've seen her be the persecutor. I've seen her being the, the um, victim and I've, I've seen her being the rescuer. And what is, and I think we all could, I think in life, right, we've all been a victim, we've all been a persecutor, and we've all been a rescuer. Those character, those roles aren't necessarily problematic. What's problematic about those roles is when you embody them within a single context, And there is inconsistency. Um, and there's no rule that governs how you're moving about in those three characters. So my coworker, I, um, with our boss, I've seen her persecute in front of me. 
She's persecuted the boss. She's been the victim of the, by the boss. And in the last six weeks, I've seen her as the rescuer for, um, for me because she is perceiving me to be the persecutor of my boss. And I want, in that audio that didn't get uploaded, I lingered there extensively to explain what that was like, quote unquote, me, the persecutor. Really, in what I believe, and this is just my own biased perception, what I believe, my boss has acted act from day one. She activated me to play the role of her advisor, her consultant. Now, in hindsight, I know that was deeply problematic. I should have never, ever agreed to that. I didn't have the wisdom. I have the wisdom now. I will never go into another situation where a boss almost pleads with me to take on a uh to, to be their advisor or consultant. That has happened to me um, a couple of times actually now. But this has been the most grotesque, the most obvious, and the most painful. So in the spirit of me being my boss's cons- uh, advisor, I have given my boss some feedback because she's asked for it. Well, my coworker doesn't like it. So she's running in playing rescuer. What's interesting about that is when, when I'm giving my boss this feedback, I'm not yelling at her. I'm not screaming. I'm doing it in like a coaching way. Like I'm acting as a coach. When my boss has activated me as her coach. I'm not now, but for eight months I was her coach. I shouldn't have been, but I was okay. And so we're in a difficult season, and and as her coach, I've been able to give her some tough feedback, but doing it in a way that would inspire growth. Now, my coworker will tell you that, like, the way you coach in difficult situations has been beautiful. She'll say it's been beautiful to watch. But there's something that has happened in the last six weeks. I don't know yet why she, what is it about me that has shifted where now my coworker feels like she's got to run interference to protect my boss. I don't know what that is. And I, I, tr- I spent some time in that reflection that didn't get uploaded, trying to unpack that. All right, you guys, I put you on hold for a second. I had some food that was warming up in the oven. I'm like, go turn that oven off because you're going to get in this reflection and kind of lose yourself. I also want to do something that I don't, I haven't really done, um, you know, I have a, I live in a duplex and there's a neighbor that lives above me. So there's a single person in the house. And, uh, what the, one of the phenom, one of the things that I've been experiencing over the last, uh, year, particularly it is, it may have been happening longer and I didn't know it, but I've become aware of it is that. Whenever I'm in a room, they have to come to that room and be above me. And one of my neighbors said they can tell when I go to a room and I turn on a light, the the people, shortly after the people upstairs will go into the room that's comparable to the room underneath them and will turn on the light. So that that was really interesting when I got that confirmation because I'm like, yo, what is going on? So when I, and oftentimes I don't, this is one of the reasons why I don't record here because in the house, because I'll record 
then I'll go into another room because, you know, I, I, although this is public, I really don't care. I don't think I'm saying anything that's really that interesting. I just don't feel like having an audience. So I get up and I move. And typically they move too. Um, so that's one thing. There's another, there are about seven things that I'm going to share with you guys um, at some point. But um, I suspect that they have the ability to hear me. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why they have to be in the same room with me. Um, and I have, I have, I, I'm a data person. I'm a social scientist. So I do have data that will back that up at some point. I don't want to do that here. That's not what this reflection is about. But I'm telling you this because I'm now in one room. I'm getting ready to move to another room. Now, if she, if she can hear me and she wants to prove me wrong, she won't move. We'll see. Let's just play. Sometimes I, Sometimes I literally will play and move from room to room just to collect data. The social scientist in me enjoys that. So I just want to give you that little, uh, if you hear the sound quality changing when I'm talking, I'm moving from room to room. So just wanted to give you the heads up. And some of you may be like, well, didn't you have a weird situation? I was in another duplex right before I moved here. Didn't that become weird? And it really was. But they were different behaviors. And so different behaviors. But I, I'm theorizing um, similar motivations. Demographically, they were the same. Just if you can read between the lines. Demographically, they were the same. And um, I think that's what's given me a theory. So um, this will be the last duplex I live in. <laughs> just for this. Just for this. Just because of... Um, um, or I will not live in a particular type of neighborhood where I have to live with a particular demographic if this is what is the pattern, right? Um, but anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna give the analysis on that at some point, but we're not doing that today. Um, so I don't know um, what has happened in the last two months that um, my coworker why she's moving into. Uh, rescue remote. One of the things is that this uh, major shift that's happening with our organization, many people are blaming our boss for this. And so my coworker is a FE and she, she can be very protective and that's good. Um, I think that's a significant part of it that she is just feeling that her FE is just feeling my boss and and, uh, and she just made, I don't know, but, um, what I don't, and this is what I, I said, what I don't care for is that in one-on-one -on -one conversations with my coworker, she speaks a different language. She has a different orientation about the boss and that is duplicity. I don't like it. And, um, FI users have said that about FE users, right? And so I don't really, I don't think all FE users would do this. This is pretty extreme, what I'm experiencing here. So there's that. And I have called my coworker when I've been frustrated with my boss because I'm like, wait a minute. I don't want to process this. I don't want to be frustrated. Let me process this with you. But every time, every time I do that, I talk to my boss about it because I do not want to be accused of being duplicitous. And I want to be fair to her, you know, and so I'm like, this is what I was struggling with. This is what I, I'm i thinking. And this, you know, but 
I think for me, another thing I won't do again is again, I'm not going to be my a person who holds organizational power over me. I'm not going to be their coach. That's toxic and crazy and whatever, whatever. So just watching my coworker move into these, move about in these three characters and having to work with her side by side and do business with her and make decisions with her and trust her has just made me just more aware of the social world that we're both moving in and about. So that was one. Um, there's another event in my neighborhood. Um, so I walk, I'm a walker. I walk my dogs and there's a lady that has been, um, I think she just moved in the neighborhood within the last six months, maybe longer because it was winter. I don't know, but I didn't see her last. I didn't see her over the winter. Well, I would see her in the winter time because she wouldn't be sitting out. So maybe she moved within the last year because now I see her out and she was very friendly. She like she she initiated a connection. Oh, tell me your dog's names. And you know, so now when I walk past her, we do a little bit of chit chatting, right? Which I can do that to a certain extent, to a certain point. And then maybe maybe two weeks ago, um, we were talking and we we're like now we're now the, the conversation is expanding. Like we're not now we're not talking about my dogs, now we're not talking about her plants. We're talking about karaoke. You guys know I love karaoke. And then she's into yoga. And so I'm like, oh, I'm not really interested in yoga. But I find myself drawn to people who are interested in yoga. And so um, so that it was nice. And um, and with these conversations are becoming more extended. And they're moving out of the small talk space to having a meaningful connection. And then up comes this man. Now, I'm going to tell you, this woman that I'm talking to, she's a white woman. And up pops this man. is a white man. And he just comes into our space. So he's a neighbor. Um, I didn't know what house he was from when he came into the conversation. I now know where he lives. But he comes up into our conversation. We're clearly having a back and forth. And usually when you walk into a social situation where two people are talking, you say, excuse me. If it's, if it's, if it's urgent and you need to interrupt it, you say, excuse me, you say what you say. And they're like, Oh, I'm sorry. And, um, you leave, but he never did that. He lingered as though, as though they had an, um, some kind of meeting or whatever. He, it was almost like he felt entitled to be there. And so. I I was walking my dog anyway, and I'm like, okay, whatever we were talking about, whatever. Okay, bye, bye, nice lady. She's giving me her name. I don't remember her name. I wouldn't say it now here anyway, but I was like, okay, nice, bye, nice lady. I'm going to finish walking my dogs. All right. Well, on my next walk, she stops me again. Now, in this conversation, she tells me about the guy, the guy that walks up, and he interrupts us. And she tells me that that's her landlord. Well, that that explains his entitlement. Like, like he felt like he had a right to be there in that space. Well, he owns that house. Okay. I mean, that's a stretch, but I'll give it to him. So she told me that. 
She also told me that he inquired about me, that he wanted to know more about me. He wanted to know, who is she? Does she live in this neighborhood? He knows I live in the neighborhood because I've been walking this route for three uh, three summers. That's odd. No, he no, no, no. He asked her, did we know each other? And she's like, no. So then he she proceeds to tell me more what he said about how he's excited that there's diversity in the neighborhood. That's annoying to me because I live in a minority majority city. This neighborhood is in a city. It is not in the suburbs. This is in a minority majority city where whites are the minority. They are tech. They are the social majority, but in the city, they are the minority. So I'm in a neighborhood in a city that is white. And the only way that you can keep a, the only way you can keep a neighborhood to be white in a minority majority city is that you have unofficial norms, practices, and processes to keep it white, right? It's illegal if you can, if you can prove that people are doing it, but it does exist. There's literature out there that explains it, right? Back in the day when you could say this neighborhood of this house is for whites only, it was legal to do that. It's not legal to do that now, but they still have practices to keep certain neighborhoods to look a certain way. Okay. So, um, so now this particular neighborhood I'm in, it is becoming more diverse to his point, but I didn't like that, that that was, I, I did not like being reduced to, um, I was othered. He othered me. He reduced me to being the other and it doesn't feel good. And she thought it was okay to give that to me. So in, by proxy, she othered me. More than likely she thinks she didn't do anything wrong, right? That was a conversation you had with him. I'm not sure why you thought I wanted to hear this man othering me and why do you think I'd be excited? And it's almost like she said it because she thought that this was going to show how progressive she is. Like, yeah, we're excited that the neighborhood is becoming like more diverse. You don't need to tell me that. Minorities, minoritized people don't need to hear about your enthusiasm. Because <laughs> if you really wanted to be in a diverse neighborhood, you would have moved to one. So let's just save all that performance, okay? Um, and then she proceeds to ask me what house I lived in. And that's why I'm like, okay. So that, that was a social context. So we went from a one-to-one situation and now our relationship was influenced by this, this, this other person. And I mean, there are many aspects to that anyway. So that was the second thing that made me think about the social with my coworker and how she's moving about in these different characters as relating to um, our boss. And then this, this neighbor who now is interacting with me as a byproduct or a residual um, of, of a conversation she had with her neighborhood slash landlord. Slash rude man, because I thought it was rude that he came in. But anyway, when you are the majority and you hold power in the social world, you walk about unapologetically. You take up space. You don't ask for, you don't have to ask for permission. You don't have to apologize. The world is yours. When you are minoritized, you 
learn that the more space you take up, the less the less safe you are. So to stay safe, you start trying to reduce yourself. Right? We can talk about that in another time. Okay. So that was the second event. The third event, back to my family. Um, so I had two uh, two visits at this house in the social setting, and I'm not going to unpack those stories because the last two episodes I've been storytelling, right? But each of those stories are within a social context. Those were not about me dealing with individual family members one-on-one. Every story that I told you was about interacting with a family member within the context of the social. And I think I even talked about with my one aunt, we do really great one-on-one. And then when we were in this larger social setting, our dynamic changes. But after I thought about that particular aunt, I thought about my other aunts. And I can even think about my uncle because I don't even call my uncle as much as I used to. And he, you know, he's like, you can call me. When we talk, we're going to talk at least an hour. We have so much in common. I believe he's an INFJ, y'all. Can you imagine that? That's so, those conversations are so delicious. Delicious, okay? But, um, but, um, but when we're in that social space, now when we were in the social space and my grandmother was alive, my uncle and I could continue on those conversations. Now that we're in that space and he's with his sisters, we don't have the, those kind of conversations. So all of this is starting to come to me like, oh, the temper of the relationship is influenced by the social context. Okay. So those are the three stories. Let me tell you, let me tell you one more thing and I'm going to go to my text. I don't want to fall in a rabbit hole so far. I'm doing well. I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I think I took, I went too far into those two other events, but that's okay. So after I did my recording with you all, and I did two recordings, you only got one of them, I went home and there was a text conversation with my family. I don't think you know this. I don't think you know this one, but if you do, just going to hear it again. And um, I've got more information about this text later. So I'm struggling with, do I give you more of the knowledge or do I give you the story the way I saw it when I responded? So I think I'm going to do that. Initially, um, there was a back and forth about an invitation. My sister lives out of town. This thread has about 20 people in the thread, okay? We're all family members. And one person spoke up and said, we're going to come and visit you. And named off the three people we're going to go visit. Those three people live in the city where I live. And I was like, why? Why did it get, why did it get designated? So I'll put it, I'll say it this way. The, so that I told you there are four girls, four siblings um, from my grandmother's kids. So the group that was going to go visit my sister would be three of the four girls, the three of the four sisters. And they were deciding that they were going to make this trip to go visit my sister. And so I paused on that because I'm like, well, first of all, um, there's so much there for me. Um, and I had to explain this to my sister, but I thought if you were going to make a trip and exclude other people, 
why would you need to do that in the thread where you have 20, you know, you got 17 other people who are witnessing you making this trip and we're, we're, we're highly communal in our family, highly communal, like living in the same house, like just, just live. We've done that. And so much where I, we don't call my, I don't call my cousins. My cousins often, we say the term sister cousin because we were coming up in the same house. We're like sisters. So I, I was, I went to say like, is this a private thread? So. I found out later that the girls, the, the sisters, that the invitation wasn't about the sisters. The invitation was about the, the the brother and his wife. My sister was teasing them, which really makes this story interesting because the one aunt whose house we were at decides to take that conversation away from being about my uncle and his wife to being about my aunt and her two, two of two out of the three of her sisters. And so it, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't feel good. And I had an analysis on it and, and after everything I had been dealing with, right. I'm wondering, you know, my sister said, had this happened in the absence of those other two events, would I had responded the way I responded? I'm not sure, but here's what I did. I said in the text, this is so, this is exclusionary behavior. <laughs> I said, this is exclusionary behavior and it's hurtful. I said, and I really wrestled with naming my feelings on that because when you come from an environment that is, emotionally abusive. When you say I'm hurt, the number one thing that they do, there's a gaslighting that they do and they go, well, I'm sorry, your your feelings were hurt. So it makes it as though you're being ultra sensitive. And so I, but I also knew that that was relevant to this story of exclusion, being excluded. But that's what exclusionary behavior does is to make people feel left out. So I just said, this is exclusionary behavior and it's hurtful. Um, I said, based on the literature, I laugh when I say this because I'm always going to be an academic. I was like, and based on the literature, it's hurtful. Mm-mm. Based on the literature, it's by design. And um, 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 and I said, and I no longer want to play. I said, sis, I called her by her name, which I never call my sister by her name. I always refer to her as sis, but I said her name. Remove me from this thread because she's been the one that's kind of organizing the thread. And and I know I've said this to you before, but I want to illustrate this. Make, I want to bring it up again. There have been other apps that our family has done like this group, group interaction. And I have found those other spaces to be triggering. This is all after my grandmother died. Now these group settings, we did not do these group. See, the academic in me is so activated in this story. It's so, or the intellectual, and I was talking to my heart coach yesterday, 
And she basically said, you have two sides of you. There's the intellectual side of you, but then there's the social emotional side of you. And this is a family. This is a social setting that you, as a social being, you have a membership in. You belong. And so you are literally trying to balance those two realities. There's an academic analysis that you have here because of your work. You can explain what's happening. And then you're having an emotional experience. Um, and so it, I've been thinking about that as well. So um, when my grandmother's alive, we didn't do this. We didn't think this didn't happen. And I have a, I would love to process that with myself. I don't think this is relevant for you. But it's noticeable, okay? Once she died, then we started doing these apps. And then, and I think there was a sense of, of there was a fear of losing the family now that the matriarch has passed. So I can see why we then moved into these online apps. And then there was this heightened declaration of love and heightened declaration of unity. And, but it was still divisive. So there were still people being lifted up. So while it was really weird. So while the premise of everybody being in the group um, was to, for us to stay together as a family, everybody didn't get lifted up. So there were key people who got lifted up. And I didn't, I didn't, it didn't feel good for me. Number one, I wasn't being lifted up. But number two, I think if I, I think I got lifted up a couple of times, but it didn't feel right. Because remember, this lifting up is what caused conflict with those other family members who were upset with me because I was that lifting me up was then using me as a golden child, right? So it all of that is happening. So I, when I first got into the social sciences and I started learning about family systems theory, this is before I learned about toxic family systems theory, just learning about family systems theory period, or even systems theory, right? As I learned, as I learned in my social science classes, I would try to come home and teach my colleagues, my, my colleagues, see, that's Freudian. I would try to teach my family members, like, look, this is what I learned. Look at how this applies to us. We can be better. We can heal. And that created a violent reaction because um, one of the things about a, a, a family, particularly a family that comes from a, um, like if you study alcoholic fam, uh, the children that came up with an alcoholic parent and they be, once they become adults, they have some very shared, very shared characteristics. And one of the characteristics is that they have a heightened need to present as good look at how good we are look at we're good and you see those people end up going into positions that have high profile goodness pastors preachers ministers teachers you know anything that has a public a social understanding of good right i'm a good person look at the position i'm in right every last one of us are in I'm laughing because I can hear it. I can hear she's she's moving softly. I just heard it. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I can hear her moving. Anyway, um, <laughs> every last one of us are in a service. Not every last one of us. The majority of us are in some kind of service role that has a public 
profile. I mean, it, that has a stamp. So like my position, um, as long as I keep my state certification, then that requires a certain behavior from me in and outside of work, right? So as an educator, a licensed educator, people already know if she's licensed, then she's checked off those boxes, right? You're not going to be a minister unless you check off some social boxes. So that's not everybody, but the majority of us. And so we play this part of goodness. So me coming in, diagnosing the family and trying to like explain, hey, look at these things about us that, that they weren't favorable. It was highly frowned upon. And I think that's when I started losing my social status, right? Because they did not like me bringing visibility to some of those behaviors that it was better to mask. So anyway, I didn't understand that then. I understand it now, which is why I don't do it anymore. So sending that text that I sent on Sunday when I said, hey, this is exclusionary behavior by design. I have not done anything like that in years because Mainly, I'm learning the script, right? So even though I don't want to, even though I don't want to be um, unaware, and I don't want to be a pawn in that system, I definitely don't want to play a toxic character. I still, I did. I mean, this is hard for me to say out loud, but I wanted to belong, and belonging in that environment is going by the script. That script, you do not call out anything that's negative. You do not, you do not bring anything. You do not highlight it. You do not bring visibility to it. So I did. And so on Sunday, I broke that. I broke that standing, that standard. Um, and I and I paused. I was like, do you want to do it? You know, this is going to come with some consequences. And so I wrestled because one of the things that this project has done for me, the last two episodes, when I think of, and I remember I, I told you guys, I was embarrassed. I was dealing with some shame. I'm like, why would you, and what was haunting me after I did those recordings, if you have to do that type of analysis, why do you go around them then? Like I started feeling my own duplicitous behavior. So in, in that episode, I think you hear me do a a note to my family. I'm like, Hey, if you find this, this isn't something that I necessarily wanted to do out loud, but I needed to process this. And this is the way that I'm going, I'm choosing to process it. Um, I don't like that. I am incredibly protective of my family. I don't like that. Even in an anonymous way, I'm processing them in this way. And it's just, it is, it is disparaging, right? I'm not trying to be malicious and okay. Is it disparaging when I'm just naming it? Right. Cause I don't think I'm like, and she's an idiot and she, no, but I am, I'm doing two things. I'm naming the behavior. I'm, I am diagramming the behavior and I'm talking about my own subjective experience, pain in it. But I would prefer that I didn't do it. And so over the weekend and Sunday night, I just was like, this has got to stop. If you have to go in and do that type of analysis consistently when you're around them, you probably need to stop going around them. That just, I need to be an honorable person. And so for the first time, for the first time in a long time, this is the result. Um, and I probably won't read the text that I have planned on reading to you because we're running out of time. 
Um, I'm going to try to squeeze in a couple, but, but this is the resolve. If you have to, if you have to do that type of analysis after you've been with them and you don't like it and you feel guilty about it, what do you need to do? See, the, the analysis that I do is very, very much part of my healing work. I go into an environment, I go into a setting, it's hurtful, I have these emotions, I have this pain, my tea is going to start processing it. It's going to start analyzing it, using my discipline, using my academic training, I'm going to start analyzing it. And then I'm going to feel guilty about it, right? So if I don't want to feel guilty about it, don't do the analysis. If I don't want to do the analysis, don't go into the pain points, right? To me, that's a set of logic. That's, that's logic. And so, um, I'm sorry, I just had a, I thought about a meeting. I've been doing good on the entrepreneurial side, yeah. Uh, so we have to process that. Like all of that processing I was doing about spirituality, spirituality, leadership, and money, I'm now starting to walk in that. You guys will be so proud. I'm so proud. And all of that came because I was really wrestling conceptually in this project. I was wrestling, period, but I used this project to do the processing. And I think that's kind of what is happening now. This... um this family situation is has a long standing. It's intergenerational. I was born into it. But my relationship to the family is very different from other people's relationships. So there are other family members who have ex, excommunicated themselves from the family. And I've been advised that I should do that. I didn't want to because I love my family. Excuse me. My family was like a lifeline for me. So... I didn't want to cut myself off from that. Um, other people survive in the family by playing, taking on these characters and exaggerating their role in, in those characters and doing really well. I definitely didn't want to do that. And so in the last, since particularly since the pandemic, I tried to resolve that I'm not going to cut myself off. I'm not going to characterize my uh, take myself into a caricature, but what I can do is limit my contact. And I have. Um, but I think this week, this weekend, and that doesn't, it doesn't remove the pain point. It doesn't remove the pain point, and then it doesn't remove the need to do the analysis, and then it doesn't remove the guilt and the shame for doing that analysis, right? So that strategy is no longer working for me, that minimal contact. So I went back to Patrick and I don't know if, excuse me, I don't know if I look for this or if it just so happened to populate. It was really weird, but he did, he does an episode called how do you break up with your family? And I listened to it. It was good. I listened to it twice and I'm going to do a YouTube response to that. So if you guys, you are interested in that, um, go check out my YouTube channel. I think I am going to start doing more, uh, content around family trauma. Um, and I'm going to either explain that in this reflection or it's coming. Um, because I just feel like it's a part of my story that I really shouldn't feel ashamed to tell it. Like 
there's there's a lot to unpack. Like, why do you feel shame to tell something you experienced? I didn't tell you. My aunt didn't have an experience with the family or with her job that I'm telling you about. I told you about my experience. And I shouldn't have shame on that. I shouldn't have a problem with doing that. Um, but I do. Um, so that's the protective side of me. And so I realize there's a relationship I have with the family that needs to be brought to an end. Um, there are some old narratives that I'm still subscribing to that need to stop. There are some attachment, some bonding and some attachment issues um, that I need to break. And it's, and nobody's going to do it. I can sit and talk about other people all day long. What I need to do is talk about my damn self. That was the thing that came through for me loud and clear. Listen, you're the common denominator. You are the one that can do the, the analysis. You know what's going on. You need to remove yourself from that situation. So I am in the process of creating my own version of a, of a breakup, if you will. I'm not, I, I, I don't know how to reconcile the breakup with this family member, my person being sick, because at the end of the day, I don't want to be cut off from that. And I know that I would be, if I did a complete breakup with the family, that person would cut me off completely. But something has to change. And so I have resolved to not do any more social set um, socials with that, with the family to just do one-on-one and I'm going to do socials with my, the sec, that third generation, my cousins, because the problem isn't there. That's another thing I realized. It, at least I haven't discovered a problem at that level, it, it, but I could, I'm not, I'm pretty sure that there are remnants of a problem, but for the most part, that's not where it gets complicated. It gets complicated when you're dealing with those siblings. I've talked to my sister. My sister has revealed some more of her pain points, but she doesn't analyze it, right? So so my sister has been telling me things over the last since um, this person has been sick. My sister has started revealing some pain points to me, and I'm like, oh, wow. It's fascinating, um, and it's sad because I don't want her to feel those pain points. And so she's been revealing them to me. But the difference between this, uh, there are two differences between my sister and me or myself. I'm grammatically, I'm, I don't know how to say that. Between my sister and me, between my sister and myself. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, I need to look that up. There are two differences. One is the real, the family doesn't serve, didn't serve the same role for my sister that the family served for me. So I have a I have I had longer time in the house with my mother and father when they were married and um so my sister has this theory about me witnessing the abuse and how that's had an impact not necessarily on me but on um other people and I don't want to get into that now so I was like that's an interesting theory and because of it's had an impact on other other people that then influences their relationship with me and I'm like okay well at least you know that there is something happening where I am so my sister can see it I think she tries to make a theory 
to justify it or to minimize it so it's not as hurtful or significant. But she sees it. And so one of the things she's trying to tell me, like, hey, this is hurtful to me, but I move on. All right. And that's fine, but I'm not, we don't see the same. She's my, I don't, I, I don't know. My, my sister is an FI user according to the last test she took. But, um, I don't know. I, I get confused. I don't know. Cause she, she is an FI user, but she's, she's, I think my sister's FI Dom actually. Uh, she's an ISFP according to the test. Anyway, I, I'll definitely fall into a rabbit hole. So far, I have not fallen into any real hat rabbit hole. So yay. Um, but when, when, when we were dealing with the residue of being raised by a single parent, my sister and I had two different coping systems. My sister spent a lot of time with my mother's best friend because my mother's best friend had a daughter and my sister and her daughter are best friends. So it made sense. They did everything together. So my sister, that was her second home. Well, my second home was my grandmother's house with all of my aunts and uncles. And oftentimes I was treated like another sibling. My grandmother had seven kids. Many people see me as her eighth child. That's how much time I spent there. So that's why that, that text about the three girls going to take this, the three sisters are going to go take a trip to visit my sister. And so I felt excluded on that on two levels. First of all, you're going to visit my sister. Why wouldn't you say, come on down, right? Number two, this isn't prior to, um, my mother's second divorce. I was always included with the sisters, with the two aunts, particularly with one of them. But now that my mom is her second divorce, there's this rallying around, we're sisters. And it's, it has, and this has exasperated since my grandmother has died. There's this heightened need to say, oh, look at us. Now, my sister made a comment and said, that's all, that's, um, super, it's, um, she, she didn't say it was superficial. Let's just use superficial. I don't think she used that word. And Patrick, the, the therapist guy on the YouTube, he says he causes, he causes, he causes, he calls it, excuse me, he calls it cheap love. Cheap. Um, we're going to move rooms again. Hold on a second. Okay, so he call, he calls it cheap love. And the video talks explains it perfectly. I didn't realize that my sister had been seeing it. My sister sees that. So I'm over here doing all this deep analysis. My sister just sees it and she just moves on. And that's the other difference between us. I have an academic background that's, and I'm, I'm a TE user. I'm a, at the, in the top of my stack. So the analysis is what I'm going to do. And then I have all these theories in this literature to pull from to do the analysis. Um, because I'm an academic. And so I think that's another reason why we, we deal with this intergenerational stuff differently. And, my sister mainly has been used as the 
golden child. I don't think, I don't think that she's been, no, 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 no. She's vacillated between golden child and the flying monkey. And I don't, because that's not a character I've had to play. Uh, I don't, This is, oh my God, I can't wait to do the analysis on this house. Um, sorry, uh, I haven't studied the flying monkey intensely, but, um, so that's just why we're going to do the, we're going to experience it differently. We're going to experience the intergenerational trauma differently, but she pretty much confirmed that, you know, she can see it and, and that she's been hurt by it and she doesn't have a high, she, she doesn't have high expectations for it. And so when my, when, when my sister called me on to like find out what happened, she said, this must've been Monday, y'all. This may have been Monday. I, I said Sunday. I don't know. But anyway, she was like, Oh, she said, do you identify with the siblings? More than you identify with the cousins. Now, part of me wanted to like side eye her. Like, you know, I do. We talked about this because of my age. I'm the first grandchild. I'm the oldest. So when the cousins get together, we might like, oh, we got left out. But I don't really expect those cousins to include me like that. Cause I treated my cousins like, like I said, siblings or like I was their aunt. But my, my aunts and uncles, it's just so yeah so anyway so I have resolved that I am um I've resolved that I can't keep subscribing to those narratives I have to break that attachment that I have with them it no longer is the family that was a the family used to be a safe haven for me it was a uh you know my father was physically abusive to my mother uh, and then, um, my mother being a survivor of that abuse and being a single parent in, in an under-resourced arrangement had a heightened level of stress. And I believe my mom, um, has her own as intergenerational trauma that has not been addressed. And so being parented by her was tough, was tough. And, um, um, my, my aunts and uncles were my second parent and or I know I'm using these fam familial roles but they were on one hand I was like the youngest maybe to my grandmother I was like her youngest and then but they were they also became like a second parent well one was a second parent to me and the other the others were like siblings and uh but that's no longer as I'm, as we're going through this per, this illness, you know, that's one thing Patrick talks about in a toxic family system. He says that the family is upside down, where the children have to do the labor, the emotional labor for the adults. Even when the children become adults, um, they still are responsible for the emotional wellness of the, the, the elders and will be punished accordingly if they're not playing that part and the the upside down family is the perfect way to explain um i don't know if that's the case with all of 
my grandmother's kids, but I definitely know that's the case with my mom. Um, uh, there's definitely an upside down emotional phenomenon um, that we've lived in and we've had to experience. And, and I think you guys, because I can do this analysis and, and I know about intergenerational trauma, it is, uh, it's not something I want to do to just blame them. I don't want to blame them. I don't want to talk negative. I don't want to, I don't want to be pained by them. I don't want to be hurt. I don't, and I'm not going to, but that, that pain, I'm going to put it on me, but I'm going to let me clean this up just in case you're listening to me and you are going through something similar. There are two parts to this. Yes, I am responsible for my own wellness. So that's first and foremost. So I have to stop going into situations where I know, you know, I'm touching a stove, I'm touching fire, and then I'm going to keep saying ouch, and then I'm going to analyze the fire. So if I keep touching that fire and keep analyzing it, there must be something sadistic that I'm enjoying about the pain. Because why do I keep doing it, right? That's got to stop. But the other piece, and this is something that my heart coach was just trying to make sure I, I, I stay careful of, is that um, And if I had time to read the, let me read one. Let me read something from the text. Let me give you one thing from the text that's relevant. Hold on. And I should have written down where I left off because now I've been just paused for maybe two minutes. And I'm like, where did I leave off? Um, I don't know exactly where I left off, but let me read something that, if nothing else, I'm just going to read it. Um, I'm in my social psychology book. Groups not only affect how we perform, but they also influence our individual sense of worth, our self-esteem, which in turn has an impact on how one group relates to other groups in a society. Um, so that's, let me read one more thing. Um, individuals obtain part of their self-concept, their social identity from their group membership, and they seek to nourish a positive group identity to heighten their own self-esteem. Um, my God, that explains, that explains the scapegoat right there too. When a family decides to take one person and problematize that person. That's because that person is not upholding the script of height. Um, so this, this says it right here. They seek to nourish a positive social group identity to heighten their own self-esteem. So that part of Ray that we're great, look at how good we are, is about making ourselves look good. And when you have somebody in the group that's not following the script of trying to heighten up the, of how the group looks, that person is going to now be uh, minimized, delegitimized, so as to not influence the group's identity. God, that's so good. That is so freaking phenomenal. Um, uh, man, because I've just been like, there is a reason why this social tissue connects the way it connects. Um, but yeah, so that's my membership. That's been my group identity. And I'm, that's where I belong. That's, oh, I know what I was looking for. It's something about, well, I already know this, but I wanted to read it. The family is the first, is the, hold on a second. I can't find it. I can't find it. Plus, I'm listening to this lady uh, um, tiptoeing. <laughs> like a, she's trying to tiptoe. You know, the, the woods, I can hear it. So, um. So I kind of got distracted by that. But I think what I was looking for is um, 
I gotta find a way to get the I I gotta get this recorded. Hold on a second. In a new room. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. Um, one of the things the family is the first it's the first social institution that you come into. It is where you you you're born into a family situation. Um and you are a social being. That is it. You don't come into the world as an isolated individual. You come into the world as a social being in a social setting with family. That is the first institution. It is your primary institution. And it defines who you are as a social being, being the first. The second major one would be either a religious, like a church, um, or and then school, right? Um, we have well now kids are exposed to media. Um, early on. So there are these, there are these primary institutions, but family really is the primary one because of just biologically what, uh, what happens when you're born. And, um, and so I, I have to be a grown up and say, um, the world that I was born into the family structure I was born into is not the family structure that exists now. And the mature thing to do is to adjust accordingly. I have to adjust. I have to stop holding on to old narratives because that is where the pain is coming from. You know, if I was like my sister, I, you know, I think she still feels the pain and what I, you know, I told her, I said, you have to be careful because a lot of that, you don't have, you're not consciously processing that pain the way I am. So it's repressed in your body. Your body's holding on to it. It's triggered. And then we talk about some unhealthy coping mechanisms, right? And so you guys know, I talk about having a healthy relationship with adult beverages. And I talked to my sister about that. And I want her to know that a lot of that trauma is stored in her body. So while she's not actively processing like I am, her body is still holding on to it. And then it's being triggered and then it moves her into a certain type of behaviors and all that. So that's what I wanted to tell you guys that that's the resolve. But that isn't what I was, there's a theory that apparently I didn't get to it again. <laughs> but I, I, this is going to be incomplete because I'm going to have to end it here. But what what I'm suspecting is that, and maybe I've said it already, as social beings, we are not individuals in, in and of ourselves. We only are what our environments allow us to be. There is no you without an environment. Okay, she just took, she just left to take the dogs out. Um, anyway. Okay, there is no you without the social. Period. But we don't acknowledge that as we're having our relationships with each other. When we're having our relationships with the self. I'm feeling emotional right now because I think this is a, a really important part for me. Most of my self-identity is tied to the social world. 
That's all of us though. But my social environment hasn't been the healthiest, hasn't been positive. So what does that mean about me? And so you guys often hear me talk about the first half of life, second half of life. I found this great quote that says, the first half of life is when you build your ego. The second half of life is when you get rid of it. Oh my gosh. And I've been feeling like, oh, am I going into the second half of life? And and I truly believe that my second half of life is going to be grounded in my authenticity to find a new social context to identify with. A new social context to associate with. Because what I've been doing is removing, 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 but I never have detached because I'm going to be attached to a, a, a social setting. So needing to find a new uh, social context to attach to. Um, I don't have it yet. I don't know how I'm going to do it. But I really believe it's going to be necessary. I know for a fact. I know for a fact that I can't keep. Uh, I can't. I can't keep holding my family to an expectation that they they don't want to feel. I cannot. I'm. That's gross. Like, I feel like a grown-up. There's a scripture in the Bible that says, when I was a child, I acted like a child. I spoke like a child. And I'm an adult. I have to be an adult. So I don't know what it's going to be like. You know, we have a big family gathering uh, that uh, a week in July where we we rotate houses. And my house is the first house. And my sister's like, what are we going to do? I've already sent out the invitations. I don't even think people are going to come because they know I'm upset. Uh, and I'm not going to play, and they're not going to want to be around me if I don't play the game. They're not going to be around me if I don't play the, look how great our family is. We're amazing. We're so close. We're so loving because I'm calling it out. I'm not going to stop calling out things though when I'm a part of it. So the best thing is for me to not be around it. So, but I think the, all I'm, tr- I think the, the big piece of the social is that we are in a social environment we have these social narratives, social norms, these social scripts, and how we interact with each other is never just about the individual. It is always about the social narrative surrounding the individual. The social narratives, the norms, the expectations, it is never just about the individual. That's how you get to situations like racism, sexism, classism, right? Those are negative things, but if you really, really want to be honest, we are all influenced by these narratives. Unfortunately, racism and sexism have a power uh, structure that's also associated with with resources and politics, which is like uh, deeply harmful. But racism only exists because as social beings, we are all connected to different social networks. Some of us are just connected to social networks that are resource rich. And some of us are connected to social networks that are research resource deprived. And so I feel like I want to say more to this, but this is all I have for today. That's the social. I think I want to stick with the social. Although the, I think I talked about more about what I'm going to do differently. But maybe the social being. I don't know, y'all. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm done, but I don't know what else to say other than the fact is that there's this invisible, yeah, 
there's this, you got these social layers I wanted to tell you guys about. The micro, the macro, the exo, the meso, um, all of those social layers. Um, you got the socialization process. I didn't get into any of that. And that's what I wanted to talk about. But we have a few more episodes left for this season. I'm going to go quiet in July. And clearly, clearly the universe wanted these, this season to be about cataclysmic growth. I have gone through major growth with work, with family and self. And I think this is just all part of one growth laden season. Season six is going to go down in the history books as being the most, um, it's been the richest in terms of uh, growth for me. And so I thank you all for being here. I don't know how to put a bow on this, so let's just close it out, okay? Um, hey, you guys, if this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about um, the different ways uh, that we move about in these social scripts, uh, interact with other, so, let's call it social interaction. That's what we're going to call it. That's it. These different social interactions uh, with work, uh, family, neighborhood, neighbors, right? And then when those social interactions remembering that they are associated with scripts and context and agendas, especially in the family when you're trying, the agenda of like, oh, we want to look good. And uh, my esteem is associated here. So anything that's going to threaten my esteem. And also I need to make sure, I didn't even talk about the hierarchy because I think that's also what happens in my family in particular. There's this hierarchy and who has access to resources and all of this really I think part of me I want to say it started after my grandmother passed but another part of me says what was it like when they were kids see there was something happening when they were kids that we will never know but one thing my sister said she was like it's like a it's like a an emotional desert there is like an emotional void and they're doing all this mimicking and you know and I, and they love that. They love the way they know to love. I know the way I know to love. I'm not perfect, you know, and I don't want to present that like I am perfect. I'm not, I want to grow, you know, and I think that's what this project is about for me is constantly making sure I'm unpacking for my growth and being accountable if I hurt people. But everybody's not ready for that. So anyway, if this conversation about those different social groups, social interactions, social narratives, social agendas, social context, if this relates to a conversation you've had in the world, please take this link and share with those participants. If my moving about has caused some randomness in you, I would love to hear it. Please, um, you can find me on my website at yourniidom.wordpress.com, Twitter, yourniidom1. Facebook and YouTube, you're and I done. Do check out the YouTube videos I posted, you know, from a few weeks ago, and I am going to respond to Patrick because Patrick did a video about how to break up with your family, and there needs to be a letter. You, you know, sometimes people say, write a letter and don't send it. He said, no, you need to send a letter and send it to be very clear. It's like a proclamation and declaration. So my sister's like, please don't send the letter. Please write it and don't send it. <laughs> So that's something I need to process, like, um, my strategy and moving forward. But I'm here for the growth, and I hope you guys 
are as well. I do have about six more episodes to do for the month of June. So do probably start seeing, expecting me to do two episodes a week, uh, something to that effect. Um, and if you ever feel pressure to listen to all of it at one time, because I am going to go quiet in the month of July. And I want to tell you about um, some ways that you're going to probably recognize my voice in other places, because I'm getting ready to start taking this work to my primary identity. I'm really excited. I thought, if I take this work to my primary identity, do that? Do I stop it here? No, because this is private. This is personal. You know, like I'm doing real personal work. In my other space, I'm going to do more, be more educational, right? So I just wanted to tell you, if you if you recognize my voice, you know what it is, okay? You guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you. Until I come back, be well. Bye.